I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast... I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. Today I'm joined by an old friend of mine and we're going to discuss the financial districts of London. Hello there. I'm David Charnick. I'm actually a tour guide in the London borough of Tower Hamlets and also in the City of London. I've lived in Tower Hamlets all my life, and I teach tour guiding there through the local council. And good morning, David. Good morning, Derek. Good to see you again. And you, sir. Now, um, obviously, when I'm driving a taxi, I spend an inordinate amount of time in the City of London, Mm -hmm. um, which is also known as the Financial District. That's right. Now, strangely enough, I know a little bit about the history of the buildings and whatever. Mm. Um, I don't know much about the workings of the city and the history of the financial district. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell me? Can we start off with banking? Yeah, banking is in many ways where a lot of the story starts uh, with Italian uh, moneylenders, basically, merchants who came over in the 13th century. And they came from the Lombardy area in northern Italy, and they settled in the area which is a commemorated now in Lombard Street, which was the home of banking in the city really till the late 1980s when the banks started moving downriver to the Isle of Dogs, to Canary Wharf. And the Italians had come in basically as moneylenders because the previous moneylenders were the Jewish community that was invited over by William I to lend money. And Basically, people weren't paying the money back because they were just Jews. You know, that's what the attitude was. And there were various ways of getting out of paying the debts. And so they were becoming increasingly inefficient. And as you may know, they were expelled from the country in 1290. But um, the thing was that these Lombard merchants, they got around the prohibition on charging interest on loans. Because Christians couldn't lend to Christians and charge interest. That's why the Jewish people were brought in, because you could do it across the faiths. Right, okay. So with their sort of wily creative accounting, they still charged interest, but they managed to hide it. But they brought basic banking principles over as well. 
Right. So um, sort of moving slightly forward, I don't want to jump forward too quickly. Yeah. Um, what about the sort of banks that we know today? What were their origins? You know, the Barclays and the NatWest and, and HSBC, for example. Mm. Banking as we know it really goes back to the goldsmiths, people who made stuff out of gold and silver. And the the majority of the Jewish merchants and then the Lombard merchants as well, they were goldsmiths because they dealt in gold and silver so they would buy up gold coin and melt a lot of it down to make stuff but they would keep some uh, gold in reserve but because of that they had excellent security now if you were a wealthy person in the middle ages what are you going to do with your money there's nowhere to put it so you would get a sort of reinforced chest and keep it there at home some people put their money in the royal mint down by the Tower of London. Uh, but most people, they just kept it in the old oak chest, as they say. And uh, But because of the security that the goldsmiths had, why not put it with the goldsmith? So you okay. would pop the money down there, and for a consideration, the goldsmith would look after it for you. So that's the beginnings of deposit banking. So they'd put a small charge on the fact they looked after your money. Oh, yeah, and you don't get nothing for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing was, that became such a source of revenue for the goldsmiths that by you, the time you get to the 18th century, the company of goldsmiths, the, the delivery company that regulated the trade, was telling its members off because they were just making money out of looking after other people's money. They weren't making stuff out of gold and silver like they were supposed to do. They thought it was bringing it into disrepute. So that's really how it starts. Right. And then, um, funnily enough, you get a lot of Quakers involved in banking. Um, the Quaker uh, had the edge in the city because Quakers were known for being upright and honest and plain dealing and that kind of thing. And so you get a lot of Quaker businessmen, but the the Barclay family, the Fry family, the Gurney family, these were all Quakers who got into banking. And uh, Gurney, for instance, that was a private bank Um one of the members of which family was Elizabeth Gurney, who married Joseph Fry of the banking family and became Elizabeth Fry, who was involved in prison reform. OK, yes, I've heard yeah, of that they, Both families were Tell strong Tell me a bit Quakers. more about Barclays. Well, Barclays began as a family bank, but of course now we know it as a high street bank. Um, but perhaps one of the most interesting things was their little foray into banking, uh, into brewing. Well, one of them anyway, Robert Barclay. Um, what happened was there was a big brewery south of the river um, which began in 1616. It's on the what we call the Bankside area now. And it was growing and it was taken over by a man called Henry Thrale. Uh, Henry and Hester Thrale, they were friends of Samuel Johnson, you know, the, the writer and dictionary compiler. Um, when... Henry took over. He wasn't much of a businessman, and the business started to fail. But then he brought in James Perkins, who was an excellent business manager, and he turned the place round. And when Henry died, his widow, Hester, didn't want anything to do with the brewery, so she agreed that per Perkins could buy it off of her. But he needed a cash injection, so he brought in Robert Barclay. And so it became Barclay Perkins Brewery. Right, there's a, a plaque to sow the site where that brewery was, just off Banner Backer Park Street. There and is. you mentioned Thrale. There's a street called Thrale Street, which links you off of Southwark Street to Southwark Bridge Road. So obviously mm. these people's memories enshrined somewhere. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. 
So, yeah, so, you know, bankers being entrepreneurial, they want to get their fingers in pies. <laughs> and it's obviously stayed in the city, banking. Yeah. Um, tell me about sort of more recent modern developments. Well, you say it stayed in the city, but Lombard Street, which was the home of banking in the city of London, started losing its banks in the late 1980s because you get the development of Canary Wharf. Yes, the on the site. Yeah, yeah, that's right, on the site of the old West India docks down at the top of the Isle of Dogs. And that was an enterprise zone um, because they, need, they had loads of redundant dock estate and they needed to do something with it. And so... Um, the idea was that you would give business rate holidays and that kind of thing. So companies found it uh, financially viable to move down there and very attractive as it happens. Mm. So, of course, the banks are always looking for, you know, the best chance, the best opportunities. And so they started moving down there. So it's only relatively recently that the banks have been coming back again the way they have, and that's really been because of the development of the, the tall buildings and stuff. Right, but of course I know one big bank is still on its original site, the Bank of England. Ah, Bank of England is an interesting one. Uh, of course, these days, it's the United Kingdom's central bank, so it stabilises the economy. It's the second oldest central bank in the world. Only the Swedish one is older. Okay. And a lot of the later central banks are modelled on the Bank of England. But nowadays, it controls things like the basic interest rate and uh, that varies but they've been keeping it very low for a long while now yes, they have. the reason for that really is to encourage business because if the basic interest rate is low that's used to calculate interest rates for borrowers and that sort of thing so it's cheaper to borrow money so if you've got a business it's relatively cheap to borrow a bit more money yeah, expand to expand your business yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> but also of course it's prince banknotes uh, it's the only issuing bank in england and wales because in Scotland, you've got three issuing banks. You've got Bank of Scotland, Royal Bank of Scotland, and the Clydesdale Bank. And Northern Ireland's got two, the Allied Irish Bank and the Ulster Bank. Uh, we used to have more in England as well, but really since the 1930s, it's been the Bank of England that has been the only one to issue right. banknotes. They the used to have a big up. printing press out in Debden. I don't know if that's still there. <clears throat> uh, Let's see it from the motorway. Yeah, uh, yeah, quite possibly. Um, yeah. I don't know about yeah. that. <laughs> and um, let's move on from banking. Mm. We obviously we were aware the city or now Canary Wharf is is the home yeah. to sort of banking. Um, other activities that are undertaken in that financial district, insurance. Yeah, insurance is the other big one as well as banks. And as far as England is concerned and Britain as well, really, insurance starts with Lloyd's. Okay. Lloyd's of London, which is not an insurance company, it's an insurance market. So if you go to the Lloyd's building, um, which as a, a civilian, as it were, you rarely get the chance to do. Um, open house weekend in September, you know, where lots of buildings get opened up. Um, if you get there early enough and join that huge queue, you can get into Lloyd's of yeah, London. it's an incredible look looking building. I mean, every time you drive past it, it does seem slightly out of place with all the older buildings surrounding it. But mm. I mean, that stainless steel exterior and you can see all the internal activities are taking place on the outside. Well, that's right. All the service, as it were, is on the outside. Um, when it was designed, it was designed in, using a term called bowelism, which is a, a European term. I think it started in Austria, right. um, which you've got the bowels of the building yeah, on the I outside. Yeah, I can see why I would call it that, yeah. Mm. yeah. 
So when uh, Rogers designed it, um, that was the technique he used. Uh, it, it's very expensive because all the things are exposed yeah. to the weather. If you look at later buildings, he does the same thing, but he covers them in glass. Right. All, the, all the pipes and stuff like that. Uh, the trouble with the Lloyds building, although when it opened in the early 80s, it was cutting edge and quite controversial. It's a listed building now. It's part of the establishment, which is what happens yeah, in London. Yeah, incredible, really, when you think about it. Yeah. So what's so the, the history of Lloyds? I mean, where does the name come from and why, why Lloyd and where do they start off? Well, as I say, it's an insurance market rather than a company. And so insurance companies have their little booths inside Lloyds. And it started as a venture in a coffee house, Lloyd's Coffee House, which used to be down by the Tower of London. It moved to Lombard Street in 1691, but originally it was down by the Tower. And insurance begins with marine insurance, insuring cargoes on ships. And that was why it was down by the Tower, because under Elizabeth I, the law was passed to regulate ports. And so there were only certain designated points where cargoes could be brought in and taken out. And the area between Tower Hill and London Bridge was known as the legal keys. There were 20 keys there where the ships would come in and unload and then the export cargoes would be loaded aboard and off they'd go. So what would happen is that people who had cargoes that would go out and the ships would come back and bring in imports which would be sold and realise a profit, thought, it's a risky business because you've got, obviously, wind and weather, uh, you've got hostile powers, and you've got pirates. So there were all sorts of reasons why your ship might not come back. Um, and, of course, William Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, is very much hinges on that, you know, rumours of ships not coming yes. back and Antonio had going to have to pay with his pound of flesh, all that business. Mm. Um, so ship owners would hedge their bets. What they would do is they would go to Lloyd's Coffee House and all the f- financial gamblers would be there, the, um, the, the tradesmen who had a bit of cash and wanted to make more because they knew this is what went on down there. Uh, you would get a big bit of paper, And at the top would be the details of your ship and the cargo going out, the expected cargo to come back and the estimated profit. And you would go round to these people and say, look, I've got a ship that's going to come back with cargo that would realise a profit of, what, 1,000 gold pieces or something. Mm. And say, do you want to invest? Um, The only thing is you will have to risk some money if the ship doesn't come back, you pay me. And so they would say how much they were in for, so maybe 100 gold pieces, 150 or 75, whatever. Um, And if the ship didn't come back, if it got lost, they would have to indemnify the ship owner. So they would have to pay up. Uh, That was the risk. And were all risks covered? I mean, was piracy covered, for example? It was just a blanket thing. If the ship doesn't come back, if the right, ship is lost. okay, so there were no yeah. specifications. Yeah, in those days, it wasn't that precise. Yeah, right, just, the yeah. ship doesn't come back, you cough up what you say you're in for. But of course, if the ship does come back, you get a proportion of the profits, dependent on how much you were risking. So it was a gamble. Massive gamble, it sounds to me. Oh, yeah. yeah. But obviously, certain ship owners would, uh, you know, get a reputation for being safe. You know, they, they would go in the right routes and that sort of thing so certain routes were more hazardous than others and so on so yeah all sorts of variations would come in variables i should say would come into the equation 
And how's that progressed towards the, the insurance system we see today? Well, for a long while, that was it. Um, it wasn't until the Great Fire of London that any other commercially available insurance became available. Originally, it was only marine insurance. But after that, um, of course, people realised, oh, fire insurance might be a good idea. I mean, there were some uh, arrangements, like I mentioned the livery companies. These were the companies that regulated but also looked after trades in specific commodities or services. So they would help out their members if their buildings caught on fire and they lost their uh, okay, their premises yeah, their and their, yeah, yeah. their tools, their stock, what have you. Uh, there were little arrangements, but it wasn't commercially available. Right. So uh, bricks and mortar insurance, fire insurance, became available after the Great Fire, and then uh, contents cover from 1705. So those are the two building blocks I, I'm, of I'm insurance. I'm sort of laughing, really, because <laughs> I bet there was a lot of skullduggery that must have gone on. Oh, dear. Well, um, also room for myth, as it were, one of these urban myths, because um, you may have seen those insurance plates, the fire plates on the sides of buildings. Yes. And um, if you were insured with say the phoenix uh, so you would get a little lead plate with a phoenix on and it will be attached to your building uh- even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Because all the fire insurance companies had to have fire engines. Not the big ones that we know. They would be basically a tank a water tank oh, on right. wheels. So they weren't sort of owned by an authority. They were owned by the insurance companies. Well, I mean, parishes would have their own as well. Wow. Oh, yeah. Right, okay. But uh, the insurance companies were also obliged, and they were usually manned by watermen 
who were the cab drivers of the time, yes, the people who used yeah. to row the people up and down the river or indeed across the river. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know why watermen particularly, maybe because they were particularly burly because they're spending their time rowing, you know, and so they're building up the old biceps yeah. and triceps. Anyway, the point is that uh, the story or urban myth is that uh, if your house was on fire and say you were insured with the Phoenix, appropriately, um, the first fire engine to reach you might be um, Royal Exchange Assurance or the Sun. And the story is that they say, oh, they're not insured by us, so we'll just let you burn. Um, which, as I say, really is an urban myth that is not accepted anymore. Uh, what they say now, is the more practical thing, that they would still pull out the fire, but then they would uh, bill the relevant yeah, insurance company for the sense, services. Suppose, yeah. Oh, yeah, because, yeah. I mean, if you let that house catch on fire, it might burn some other houses, including one that you do cover. Yeah. So you don't want to pay out on a claim, so it's much better to get the fire out. Right. Yeah, no, it makes mm. sense. And moving on then again, mm. um, we've talked about the banking. We've sort of gone briefly through insurance. Um, mm. What about, and we've talked about the Bank of England as a building itself. Mm. What about other important buildings in the city, like the Royal Exchange? What activities were undertaken there? Well, the Royal Exchange is where the story really starts in terms of London being a centre of organised finance. I mean, nowadays it's a high-end shopping centre. Yeah, it is. You've got Fortnum and Mason there and people like that. Yeah. But the original building, which opened in 1571, that was a place where merchants and traders would gather together because they literally used to meet on the streets. I mean, they would have their certain places where they went regularly, but they would be on the streets, these traders. So, of course, if it rained or snowed or anything, they would just nip into the nearest shop and continue their business. But... Um, it goes down to the Gresham family. First of all, Sir Richard Gresham, who represented the court of Henry VIII on the exchange at Antwerp. Because um, Antwerp had this exchange or bourse, which was a place where the merchants would gather, the traders. And Antwerp was at the heart of European finance in the Middle Ages. And uh, similarly, Venice, which was the gateway to Europe from Turkey, from Constantinople yes. or Istanbul now, mm. that had an exchange. And so Richard Gresham thought it'd be a good idea if we have one. And Henry VIII thought it was a good idea, but the city blocked it. And so it was down to his son Thomas to build the Royal Exchange. I mean, he basically saved England from bankruptcy under Edward VI and so on. He was a financial wizard. And uh, so the city possibly grudgingly, gave him the land. He had to pay for the thing to be built. But uh, that was where the merchants and traders would gather together and they would do their deals. And, of course, there'd be people coming in from all around the world. And so that the saying was that you'd come along Cornhill, where the entrance to the original exchange was, and as you approached the exchange, you could hear all the languages of the world spoken in one building because there was all this jabber oh, going incredible. on. Yeah. Um, but that's where it all begins, and so the first building, of course, was destroyed in the Great Fire. And so a new one was erected, and then that caught on fire in the 1830s, and the present building goes back to 1844. But it was an important part of the financial process in the city until uh, more recent times when it has, as I say, become a, shop, a shopping centre. Yeah. yeah, no, a stunningly attractive building. Hmm. OK, now... When I used to be driving around the city, hmm. I used to see 
uh, lots of young men, particularly around lunchtime, mm-hmm. in their stripy blazers or odd-coloured blazers. I don't yeah. see them so much today. What was their role in the city? I'd be surprised if you saw any at all, to be frank. <laughs> Unless they were hipsters, of course. Yeah, possibly. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't uh, seen any for a few years now. Yeah. Um, well, really, you're talking about the Big Bang, which was October 1986. Uh, what happened was the government at the time thought they wanted to open up the city. Okay, so what uh, was the role of these guys with the blazers, though? Yeah. Um, well, this is it. They, one of the things that changed was the trading floor. Because previously, all the exchanges of the City of London operated what's called public outcry trading. So you'd have a trading floor, face-to-face dealing. So if it were the stock exchange, it would be the sale and purchase of shares. Uh, The Baltic exchange is about cargo shipping and that that sort of thing. Uh, The London Metal Exchange is to do with non-ferrous metals and stuff. And so all these people were traders. And each establishment would have its own distinctive blazer. And so going back, say, to the stock exchange, uh, these would be stockbrokers. And what you had was a big trading floor, and there'd be a mill of people in there, um, some selling, some buying, some doing both. And a stockbroker is someone you would commission to sell your shares or to buy shares on your behalf, because you couldn't go down to the stock exchange yourself and say, well, I'd like 500 shares in Company A, please. Then get out of here. <laughs> go uh, okay. get a stockbroker so to, to do it. So go through your broker. Yeah, right. so it has to go through the broker. So that's what they they were. And so they'd been milling around, and so you want to get rid of, say, 500 shares in Company A. So you would brief a stockbroker who would go down on the floor and would be making signals, shouting out, you know, 500 shares in Company A, 500 Company yeah, A. I've seen it on television. It always looks chaotic. Oh, yeah, nightmare. Yeah. And uh, and someone across the floor would be looking to buy shares on behalf of a you know investment fund or a pension fund or something like that. Um and he he or she because there were female traders as well um would hear you saying oh you think oh well that's a reasonable investment we'll take some of them. And so they would signal over and the deal would be done. Right. I mean, the deal would be done very quickly because there was no haggling over price because the price was set by the exchange. Yes, of course. Yeah, mm. I see that. Yeah, but yeah. with the Big Bang, suddenly all that changed because it brought in uh, a lot of revision of the practices of the city. And one of them was, do we need these big buildings with their trading floors and the, all the overheads are heating, electricity, that kind of thing? When we've got the internet and you can trade with the world in real time. And so suddenly... All these big buildings are not needed anymore. Uh, So the stock exchange itself, which used to be along by the Bank of England, in a really big building, I mean, it was enlarged hugely in the late 1960s, and you had a big tower block of offices next door, part of it. Now it occupies a few rooms at uh, Paternoster Square, just to the north of St Paul's Cathedral. Right, Okay. Mm. So that changed the city, I suppose, forever? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so, um, in terms of how it worked, and also the people who worked there. Because previously, um, it was a kind of closed shop. You know, if you wanted to work in the city, you had to get your introduction, really. And uh, so, so would, be that, would that be by a worker who was already there, or...? 
could yeah. you sort of sleep? Yeah, sleep you, you'd be recommended by somebody or uh, maybe your father. I mean, the, the classic ah, thing, you know, course. well, I, I knew his father. He must be all right. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you went to the right school yeah. and so on. So if you had an old school tie, you would make sure you wore it uh, and that sort of thing. And, and so you would get introduced into right. the city. Uh, whereas after the Big Bang, they got rid of that. And it became a meritocracy, so it was freer. And then you get the character known as the Barrow Boy, the the young man who learned his craft, learned how the market worked, selling fruit and veg or crockery or whatever on his dad's stall down the market. And he basically ruled the roost for a few years? Essentially, yes, because... Previously, under the old system, this is one of the reasons why it was such a closed shop, everything worked on trust. You had to trust that everyone would do what they said. I mean, the uh, motto of the stock exchange, my word is my bond. What I've said I do, I will do. Uh, But now it was greed. Greed was the, the thing now. It took the place of trust. And you start, for instance, getting insider dealing, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that, because I mean, the, the famous Nick Leeson story. Well, there you go, yeah. Nick Leeson. That's the, the classic example, the man who brought down a whole bank, Bearings Bank, by his, uh, his tactics. Mm. But uh, insider trading uh, is basically where you, um, you use your knowledge in an illegal way. It's, it's illegal insider trading, by the way. Um, but uh, say you knew a small company is going to be taken over by a big one. And the reason for the takeover usually would be that the smaller company is failing or it's not doing so well. So you know the shares are really low. But you've heard the takeover is coming. And so you get someone you know, maybe a family member, something like that, and you say, you know, here's a, a wad of cash. Get me yeah. a 1,000 shares. Yeah. or 500 shares, and yeah. they buy that and when the shares are low. And then the next week, news of the takeover is at breaks, and suddenly the shares in that company rocket. So presumably, obviously, killing. the regulating authorities would be on the lookout for this sort of activity. Well, yeah, as I say, it's illegal. Right. <laughs> and who are the... We'll talk about the governance of the city in a minute. Yeah. Um, let's just quickly mention regulatory bodies. Well, there's the Financial Standards Authority. Right. Um, So they are a major regulatory body. Um, But, of course, there is also, as I say, the law. Right. So, Well, of course, we should point out the city has its own police force, doesn't it, outside of the Met? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the City of London um, has had, strictly speaking, it's had a police force since 1732. Uh, There was a, a law passed which established its paid police force. Uh, But that was a different kind of police from the one that Robert Peel created when he had the Metropolitan Police created in 1829. Um, But the city didn't want to be run by the Home Office, basically, because, as I'm sure you know, all the police forces or police services in the country answer to the Home Secretary. Uh, But the city has always been fiercely independent, not having any of that nonsense. And so they resisted the uh, the call to be joined to the Metropolitan Police area. So a compromise was reached. So 10 years after the Met came into being in 1829, in 1839, the new City of London Police Force came into being, organised along Peel's lines, right. but independent. OK. And let's talk about sort of overall governance of the city. Who's in charge of the City of London? 
The local authority for the city is the corporation, which is an ancient authority. We don't even know how old it is. Oh, yeah. It came into being somewhere between 886, which is when Alfred the Great drove the Danes out of London. So obviously oh, there was no that. corporation then. Uh, between then and 1066, when William came over, William of Normandy, and... Uh, and took charge as William and the First of England. And where are their offices? Where are they based? They're based around the Guildhall. I mean, you've got the Guildhall building itself, which yep. it's a very special building. It survived the Great Fire and, indeed, the Blitz, of course. But that's the Civic Hall for the City of London, so that's used for the council meetings or the meetings of the Court of Common Council. As they, they've always got fa fancy yeah, names. Yeah, they, they have city. Yeah, the city, definitely. Yeah. But around it, there's this uh, big complex of offices, and that's where the corporation are. So they are responsible for running the city and obviously they uh, regulate the city and decide how it works. And one of their big decisions is that it should be largely non-residential because you've got 25 wards or administrative districts in the city and only four of them have any significant residential population. So uh, that's mainly where the Barbican housing estate and the the, uh, yeah, um, Lane the, the Petticoat there, yeah. Lane estate yeah. as well. Um, but most of it's non-residential because if you want to build up a business speciality, the last thing you want is residents complaining about you erecting new office blocks. And yeah. So it's like a that. deliberate policy? Yes. Right. Oh, okay. yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. yeah. And um, competition... Hmm. Where's the main competition coming from nowadays to be the sort of financial centre of the world? I suppose the obvious competitor really should be Frankfurt. Right. Um, but it's a world of information technology. So um, London is a major financial centre, but it doesn't mean that the competitors for London are only in Europe. So somewhere like Shanghai, for instance, could be considered a potential competitor. With the way telecommunications are, you can move anywhere now. You don't have to be located anywhere specifically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, from my perspective, being a taxi driver, obviously a healthy city means more work for me. And yep. I presume a healthy city of London does bring benefits to the country as a whole. I know often there's criticism um, of, it, of look, the money sort of staying south, but um, I think Generally speaking, it's better for the country if the city holds on to its financial status. Well, one benefit is the, the business rates that the city generates. You can imagine with the businesses you've got there, huge amount of business rates, but the city can only keep a small percentage. So the rest of it goes off to offset deficits in other local authorities. Right. I mean, yeah. obviously it's not enough, but uh, it does contribute towards that. Yeah. And you've got all the, the fringe industries, like you say, cab driving, that sort of thing, coffee shops, sandwich shops, all that business. They were hit very hard, as you can imagine, during the lockdown when yes. everyone was at home. Yeah, tell me about it. And yeah. there's been the, the fear ever since because a lot of companies have realised that they don't need to be in the city anymore. And no, so that's you, what worries me. Yeah, you've got a lot of people working from home and the, the company will maybe reduce their holding in a block to one or two 
rooms, basically, and you will have hot desking. Yeah. So no one has their own dedicated desk. Yeah, and people just... are coming in a few days. But one of the things I've yeah. noticed recently <clears throat> is that Mondays and Fridays are quieter days for traffic now. Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays are busier days because mm. I'm presuming if people are given an option to work from home, they're making it sort of a long weekend. Oh, yeah, much better than breaking it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, here's the city for the future, David. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Derek. Always a pleasure. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.